Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Fran Coombs is the managing editor of Rasmussen Polling in the United States. We talked to Fran regularly. We did almost every week in 2016. We talked to us a lot this year as the U.S. election is winding down. Tuesday's the vote. Fran, uh, I looked at the most recent numbers from Rasmussen and uh, yesterday, Biden up by three points. How does that compare with polling a month ago? Oh, that's obviously tr- Trump's doing much better than he was a month ago, Roy. I mean, he was down by 12 points at one point. Uh, but, it, you know, basically all I can say is here we go again. 2016 all over again, neck and neck in the battleground states, neck and neck nationally going into the final day. So this is anybody's race now? I'd, I would say so. I mean, remember that, that uh, those numbers you cite, there's a 3.5 uh, plus or minus margin of error in that. Yeah. We see that same thing in the states. Uh, so this, uh, in, in all the battleground states are close in our surveying. I mean, you know, Trump may be up by one or two, Biden may be up by one, uh, but all those things are basically negated by the margin of error. So I'm looking at some of the numbers that have come out of the out of individual states like uh, Arizona, South Carolina, um, and some of the other states that you that you mentioned in the uh, in, in the in the polling yesterday. How do they fit in, and what's significant about the developments that are happening in these individual states? Well, all of these states are what we call battleground states. These are key ones that basically whoever wins these states, chances are they're going to win the overall election. Because, I mean, I'm sure as in Canada, there are, there, are certain, there are certain states that are always going to go Democrat. There are certain states that are always going to go Republican. So there's, there's, there's no mystery there, and that's why you don't see the candidates campaigning there. But you're talk, when we're talking about Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, uh, Florida, these are, these are must-win states, for Trump in particular. Uh, he, he won both Florida and North Carolina last time. Uh, he very much needs to win them again. Obviously, you can see they're pounding on Pennsylvania in the closing days here. Yeah. Pennsylvania is critical for Trump. Uh, how do Americans view the direction the country is is in, the, uh, the compass point it's heading toward? Well, it's interesting you mention that. That number is starting to go back up. In fact, in the numbers we release tomorrow, we'll show that 41% of likely U.S. voters think the country is headed in the right direction. That's the highest that number has been since the lockdown began. Uh, it's, of course, it's, it's 20 points higher than it was during much of Obama's presidency. But still, all the indicators are going Trump's way. His job approval numbers are back up. The right direction number is moving in the right direction. The problem he has is that a lot of the people that are voting for Biden made up their minds four years ago that they were going to vote against Trump. So uh, we also, um, Fran, and I, again, I'm looking at the information from Rasmussen. Large numbers of Americans are indicating they will vote on Tuesday. They'll actually go and vote. They're, they're committed to that. Is that enough time for a major development to uh, outside the you know outside the current parameters, a major development to make a significant impact. And I guess I'm going to bring it full circle to my first question: Is the race for the White House still either Biden's or Trump's to win? Is it that close? Yes. Oh yeah. No, there's no question about it that it's that close. But I think the vast, vast, vast majority of voters have made up their minds. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine there's more than maybe one percent or two percent at most. Uh, that still don't know at this point. And that's why I was saying a couple of minutes or so ago that so many of the voters are voting against Trump, and they have felt that way for quite a while. Uh, 
Uh, so this this either yeah, it, it's going to go right down and be just neck and neck right to the last minute. I suspect. So we won't know Tuesday night. That's hard to say. Remember that Trump Trump can probably lose the popular vote by as much as three percent. Remember Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by two percent in twenty sixteen. Right. Yes. He can Trump can probably lose up to three percent and still carry enough electoral votes to win uh, to win the presidency. Uh, but my guess is that these races are as close as everybody seems to think they're going to be. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, legal machinations going on before we get a final count. Yeah. In 16, that popular vote that uh, Hillary Clinton won by, just about all of that popular vote margin came from the state of California, did it not? Right, right. And that, I mean, that's one thank Thank goodness the founders in their wisdom thought up the Electoral College, because if we didn't, we'd have basically New York and California picking all our presidents. Yeah, like we do here at Quebec and Ontario. Also a follow-up today on uh, the issue of mental health and uh, the fallout of life changes during the COVID-19 pandemic from loneliness to depression, and it could get worse. Mark Hennick is a mental health strategist. His TED Talk about attempting suicide and being saved by a stranger at 15 is one of the most watched videos in the world, numbering millions of watches. Uh, Mark was the National Director of Strategic Initiatives for the Canadian Mental Health Association and the National Spokesperson for the Canada-Wide Faces of Mental Illness Campaign. He has uh, his autobiographical book coming out in January, So-Called Normal, which is also in the name of one of his podcasts, and there's another podcast, Living Well. He is the CEO of Strategic Mental Health Consulting in Toronto, and Mark Hennig is back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mark, when we talked uh, last time, and thank you for coming back, when we talked last time, there were a lot of questions that I still had, uh, and it was based on partly on what you said and things that we didn't get to. So what are your concerns right now, today, about the emotional, the mental health well-being of Canadians as far as the various impacts of COVID-19 are being felt? Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me back. And, you know, this is such an important issue. I was predicting way back in March and April uh, that we would be looking at what I started calling an echo pandemic of mental health problems and illnesses. Uh, I think that we're firmly into that now. We're seeing because of uh, isolation and job losses and just the uncertainty, the ongoing uncertainty of the situation, uh, increasing rates of depression and anxiety and uh, even, sadly, suicide. So I think this is just the thin edge of the wedge right now. I think it could get a whole lot worse. So let's talk about that. Uh, the vulnerable people, people who are going to become more vulnerable as the months go by, and the concerns mount, and the economic repercussions rise. How do you recognize in yourself, or can you recognize in yourself, that you are being negatively affected? Well, this is just it. You know, we've seen, uh, or we knew from the beginning that people who are already at risk of a mental health problem or illness uh, might be at more risk now. Uh, But something interesting has been emerging through the course of the pandemic, which is that people who we didn't think were at risk before are starting to show signs and symptoms of mental illnesses as well. Uh, So I think in some ways, and I, you know, I'm saying this as a person with lived experience myself, people who have already had uh, a diagnosis or even have had prior prior undiagnosed struggles with mental illness, in some ways are are better off because we've had opportunities over the years, the longer we've been doing it, to develop some of our coping mechanisms to figure out how to get through it. Whereas people who are dealing with this for the first time, they may never have had an opportunity uh, to figure out what works for them in their recovery. So that's the group in some ways that I'm more concerned about. And the problems are coming at them in multiples. 
They absolutely are. I mean, and we're seeing this uh, this fatigue now, pandemic fatigue, also working from home and trying to do it digitally or virtually uh, through understanding different, uh, different, many different people's faces, for example, when you're on a Zoom call. We know that neurologically speaking, that's exhausting for your brain to do to try to understand that many things at once. Uh, but then we, we have the ongoing isolation. We have some provinces that are at risk of uh, shutting further down, like Ontario, for example, where I'm currently based. Uh, work from home is, means also juggling kids and uh, relationship and the identities tied up with that. And that often means as well that we're actually living at work more than we're working at home. Uh, we know that stress and risk factors are cumulative. That is to say they add up. And if you don't stop yourself or find ways to cope, your body will stop you. That's the way that our mind works. Yeah. You know, I mean, I work from home. I broadcast from home and have for months now. I miss the studio. I want to go back to the studio and broadcast. I don't want to walk down the hall, turn on a mini version of a of a, of a radio studio board. The big one is being used and flown by the the great crew that look after this program, um, Lorraine and Will. But it, it, you know, I, I want to get out of the house by the end of the today. I just want to get out and breathe some air. And yeah. and you know, and and I, I imagine there are people. I mean, I can handle this, but there are people who. Maybe they're stuck in their homes or they work from home and, and it becomes too much for them. Yeah, you know, I, I experienced this personally myself. My entire livelihood came from live events and not just not just going to an office every day, but going up on a stage with yeah. hundreds or thousands of people and then all of a sudden to not have that. Uh, I just recently myself started working from a co-working space that is under tight COVID guidelines, uh, very well managed uh, and I couldn't believe, I wasn't expecting myself, the relief that came from just having somewhere to go every day, to be able to leave my, my apartment, I've been working from home too, and just go somewhere that's not my home. Uh, it was incredibly liberating, and, I, and certainly not everybody has that opportunity, but I think that does play a key role in our well-being, is just having something to do that structures our time in the day. Mark, you lived through it, so what is it like, and you talk about it, what is it like when the when the world becomes so dark that you see no option, no opportunity, nothing to live for. Yeah, in some ways, I think uh, this pandemic has been instructive for people who haven't been there before, uh, because in some ways it's like a lockdown of your mind. That's exactly what's happening. You're finding yourself more isolated. Uh, you can, even if there are options for you in terms of treatment and recovery and hope and inspiration, you just don't see them because your mind won't let you. Uh, I, I say in the TED Talk, this perceptual collapse, that it's like these blinders come on and, and you can't see anything around you except for a way out sometimes when you get down to the bottom of depression. That's where suicide lives, I think. Uh, at least that's been my experience. And you start looking for ways to try to, to cope. Some people turn to drugs and alcohol. Some people turn to suicide, uh, tragically. Um, but we don't have to get there. If we can help people to break free of that collapse that's happening inside themselves, uh, then we can help them to access, uh, hopefully, the services that are available to them. So during our last conversation, you raised that point, the services that are available and the services that should be available. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, been one of the um, double-edged swords, I think, of the mental health awareness movement over the last decade or so. We've done a really great job of raising awareness. We're doing more shows like this uh, than we ever have before. 
but the problem is with that, however, we're encouraging people to reach out. Very often people are finding out that there's nobody there to reach back. They're encountering wait times that are a year or a year and a half, or they're encountering a system that just isn't organized in an effective way. So now I think the mission needs to be to, to show people that there are many, many more routes to recovery uh, than just the one way of going into a hospital or just talking to your doctor. That's an important part of the system, but it's a very small part of the system. And there's actually many ways uh, that people can get back on their feet again. Okay, so you have two podcasts. One is Living Well, the other is So-Called Normal. And uh, you have a book coming out, uh, autobiographical, on the 12th of January, So-Called Normal. I'm, I'm sure that's going to provide people with help, uh, you know, some valuable information. What did you write about? What's in you it? Know, my, uh, one of the reasons, um, or, or I, I should say, it's the only thing that I know how to do, is to talk candidly about my own lived experience. Uh, and it turns out that, according to research, uh, people sharing their lived experience with mental health problems and illnesses is the most effective way to break down stigma. And we need to raise awareness to break down stigma because that increases help-seeking behavior. That help that gets people to reach out more, uh, knowing that other people have been through it. So that's exactly what I wrote about. I wrote about my own lived experience, my individual uh, encounter with uh, serious mental illness, uh, with my repeated suicide attempts. But then I also talk about uh, what didn't work for me, but most importantly, what did, how I started to find hope and how I made it through with a combination of grit and grace, I think, uh, but also some of the things that people said and did to help me through. So uh, that for me, you know, this isn't a misery memoir about all the times I tried to kill myself. It's actually about how I didn't. It's about how I didn't kill myself. And I think that's the most important message I can deliver. So, Curtis, thanks for coming back on the show and the New York Post front page story with you and your fellow guardian angels uh, on the front on the cover uh, speaks to growing post-election fear. How bad is it? Oh, it's very bad, because uh, if you just take a cue from Macy's Herald, the largest department store in the world in Herald Square in Manhattan, they've already bought up all the plywood that Home Depot can sell them. Saks Fifth Avenue is all boarded up. Fifth Avenue is boarded up, Soho. These are the places where there are lots of products available to shoppers on a regular basis. But these vendors know they're not going to go through what they went through back on June 1st and June 2nd when the rioting and looting just consumed their stores. They'd rather be safe than sorry. And we've announced to the city, because our mayor is so feckless and weak, Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo, that if they're not going to let the police defend the streets of New York City, especially in Manhattan, where you have all these great shops that are so vulnerable for a second time of rioting and looting, then we will once again put our bodies in the way. We don't surrender, we don't retreat, and we'll be prepared to battle whatever looters may think they can take advantage of this situation. And you've been doing it for a long time. 41 years, and in fact... This past summer, June 1st, June 2nd, was battling the looters. I broke my jaw. A number of other guardian angels had some very serious injuries. We looked towards the arrival of the cavalry, the NYPD, but we were told by these men and women later on, Curtis, we would have come into the belly of the beast where there were hundreds that were rioting and looting, but we were ordered by City Hall to stand down. Stand down. We saw you in the cameras because now they have technology everywhere on every telephone pole every utility pole 
So they saw what was transpiring, and yet they were being told again and again, do not go into the belly of the beast, do not go into the fray, let the group uh, sort of get rid of its hostility by looting. It's only property, it's only product, they probably have insurance, no need to risk your life and live. And we said, oof, to that, because first, history dictates to us, if you let them come for the property and then they come for the product, naturally they come for the people next. And that's the situation we're in here in New York and other major cities around the country, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, Tampa, Chicago, Cleveland, Portland, Oregon, all those cities that have suffered massive amounts of looting uh, during the rioting over the summer. When you were on the air with us last time, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned to us that you had actually been called by residents of Wall Street, not the bankers who go to work there, but residents of the area, and you'd been asked as guardian angels to start to patrol and protect. And that, that just to me speaks volumes of the reality of the situation. Exactly. That local government, in the form of the mayor and in form of the governor, who everybody knows, Governor Cuomo, he loves to have his coffee with Cuomo every day at noon, has completely abandoned all public safety. He's basically said to everyone, the wealthy, the middle class, the poor, you're on your own. You can't depend on the police. We're not going to let them become proactive. They're going to have to be reactive. And all the people who moved into the Wall Street area, because there are a lot of buildings that were constructed, condos and co-ops, have decided, oh, my God, we're right. All of a sudden, we're surrounded by emotionally disturbed persons, homeless people, drug dealers, gangbangers. This is nothing you would ever think would transpire in Wall Street. And many of the Fortune 500 firms, they've gotten private security. they put up barricades. But they haven't done it for the people who actually live there, so that's what the Guardian Angels are doing for them and others in New York City who feel that we will once again be under siege like we were during the summer. And you're doing it across the United States? Across the United States in the major urban areas, but there is the threat that this could happen in smaller secondary cities. Yeah, This is how I see it playing out. So many of the mail-in ballots, in a record number, probably were filled out by those supporting Joe Biden. We know that the president's strategy was he was telling his supporters, don't send in a mail-in ballot, go to the normal polling locations this Tuesday. So we know the majority of the votes that will be counted on Tuesday are the ones that are in the scanning machines and the old lever machines. So let's say by midnight, November 3rd going into November 4th, it may appear that Donald Trump has won the election. He may announce, hey, I won. And yet there are so many hundreds of thousands of ballots still to be counted that may take weeks in order to be counted. And I can easily see Antifa and Black Lives Matter and other groups that are inalienably opposed to uh, Trump's second term taking to the streets and, and deciding that anarchy must prevail. And that's why we as good citizens of America, regardless of who wins, Trump or Biden, we have to protect property, we have to protect product, and most importantly, we have to protect people. We cannot let these mobs run through the streets screaming, whose streets are streets? It's not their streets. It's all of America's streets. And we got to be willing to risk our lives in order to get that point across to them. Because over the summer, most Americans folded like cheap cameras. They were just too intimidated, too scared of the pandemic, and too scared of the rioters and looters. 
I first talked to you 41 years ago when you formed the Guardian Angels, and I'm talking to you now, and uh, the problem clearly still exists. Curtis, thanks for talking to us, and uh, when you run for mayor, well, I'll talk to you next weekend if you have the time, depending on what happens, um, but when you run for mayor, I really want to talk to you then. Right. You will see a totally different New York City when I become mayor. We will return to the glory of 24-7-365 and become once again the crown jewel of urban America. I read um, an essay about a week and a half ago that really, really got my attention. And it's titled Pandemics Today and Yesterday. And the author is Professor James Harris, Jim Harris, from Ohio State University. His specialties include the history of infectious diseases. And uh, he talks about, writes in the, in the essay, about how microbes, the bad ones, have historically disrupted entire societies and have profoundly shaped our human history. And Professor Harris joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. It's a lot easier if we do this on a first-name basis because we're talking for half an hour. So, Jim, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Roy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you, you, you describe, or some, somebody you quote in the piece describes these microbes, and COVID is one of them, uh, that disrupt our societies and kill many people as deadly companions. I did not have a clue that they account for 14 million people each year. That 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 um, term I I ripped from the title of an excellent book published by Oxford by a, a, a professor named Dorothy Crawford. Her book is called Deadly Companions: How Microbes Shape Our History, and really gives us kind of a tour de force of of so many different types of human impacts that um, different pathogens have had throughout time. Yeah, well, fourteen million, and we're talking currently, right? So fourteen million each year. At this time in our history, am I right? Indeed, yeah. It's, it's, we uh, disease is you know one of the leading causes of, of mortality today. Right. Not infectious diseases like cancer and heart disease, but diseases still remain a serious problem, especially. Yeah, yeah. We've gotten a little complacent, I think, in our society. We think of the flu as just being something that happens, it passes by once in a while, and we get our shots or we don't. And, and they're not no big deal, and they certainly are a big deal. There's also there's a question about uh, the dramatic impact, the uh, economical and, and economic and social impact of COVID-19, the one that they've already had, and it continues to have on our daily lives. So can we can you touch on that, please, on the on what COVID-19 this particular one is doing to us? Uh, obviously, as you just mentioned in the program a moment ago, the um, fact that small businesses are, are being forced to, to, to shut their doors or, or profits are, are declining dramatically um, is, a, is a profound economic um, consequence. Um, just the, the emotional toll uh, a pandemic is, is, is having on our society is worth um, living in Zoom boxes and isolated from, from friends and extended family. Um, has has really severe social consequences, and um, this is a you know a, a, a moment in a much longer history. Diseases have had these kind of economic and social consequences in various forms for all of recorded human history. Yeah, um, and unfortunately, we just don't we kind of take that for granted or didn't don't really think about that on a day to day basis. Yeah, uh, Jim, I'm going to cherry pick one 
because I've heard the term so many times, and it just strikes fear into your heart. Uh, just when you read about it, the Black Death, um, 1347 to 1353. What was the Black Death, and what did it do? Because in your piece you write about how these microbes, the uh, deadly companions, change, in in fact, the evolution of the human race and change our, our, our societies. What did the Black Death do to Europe in that six years? So it followed, so the Black Death is, is bubonic plague. Um, it's a bacterial infection that, that um, spread, into, uh, spread into Europe from, from, from Mediterranean ports and then from there permeated throughout Europe um, and killed upwards, you know, as many as, as some estimates are as high as 50% of, of the population of Europe um, died um, either in proximate or long-term um, uh, uh, consequences of, of plague. And when you have that kind of a, of a demographic shift, that much population die off, um, um, all kinds of sort of short and long-term uh, social consequences emerge. Of course. Um, in terms of, uh, I'll just give you three examples, um, in terms of the society, social and economic consequences to start, um, when you have less people uh, around, you have less sources of labor to work on farms. Uh, and so the value of labor uh, in terms of wages rise. Um, uh, we, so the standard of living then in turn rises with that. Um, on another consequence, a sort of environmental consequence, um, with, a, with that kind of enormous demographic uh, die-off is with land usage. And so um, sort of natural land was rec nature reclaimed land, pastures, meadows, forests sort of regrew if that land wasn't being used to feed yeah. this um, population. And then it, it ultimately has long-term political consequences. Yeah. So we're extremely fortunate to be living in the 21st century. And if we just look at the, the progress that's been made as far as dealing with viruses and these uh, deadly companions, the microbes, the progress that's been made, been made since the uh, so-called Spanish flu of 1918, we're lucky to be where we are now. Absolutely. Uh, we, 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 first un, we first identified um, the particular, we started with back, identifying bacteria in about the 1880s. Um, we could start saying this is the bacterium that causes this particular disease. Uh, tuberculosis and cholera were among the first. But um, in terms of viruses like influenza, um, we, we had an understanding of some kind of pathogen uh, around the turn of the 20th century that was too small to be seen under a microscope. And so we couldn't identify viruses until the 1930s, so well after the, um, the so-called Spanish flu of 1918. The impact of these deadly companions on societies caused the development, in your essay I read, of early public health commissions. And then we look at the regional and national lockdowns that COVID-19 has created that have strained public tolerance and have caused really great concern about economic consequences. Um, that's also an example of public measures that were undertaken, or there, there are public measures that were undertaken many years ago to combat plagues of that time. Can you put all that together for us? Sure. Um, so in the previous segment, we talked a little bit about the Black Death, and um, actually these public health commissions in, were one of the long-term um, um, legacies of, of, of the Black Death. The 
Um, very term quarantine comes from the Italian uh, for 40 days, um, which is the duration that ships which were coming into uh, European ports were were uh, kept in port in quarantine before they were allowed to to enter in and and disembark and, and deploy their goods so as to, to mitigate the spread of, of, of plague. And so those have a very long, these, these sanitary commissions have a very long history to them. But even in uh, the 20th century, uh, if we look at what I particularly researched, which is the 1918 flu, um, responses to the flu varied very much regionally. Uh, some cities uh, imposed um, well, mask mandates, uh, where others and other regions did not. So this was the 1918 flu, right? The uh, so-called yeah. Spanish flu. But these, but these early public health commissions—they go back to the 1300s, which is amazing because we're still doing it today. Um, so, so they had some good ideas that just didn't have the science we have. But if if we look at 1918, the flu that you really specialize in, there were some errors made, significant errors made in misdiagnoses. What was done in 1918 that made that one even worse? So uh, a couple of things were were problematic in 1918. Um, in, in, in 1890, uh, the last flu pandemic before 1918, the last major pandemic, um, spread out of Russia, therefore often called the Russian flu. Um, and during that, during that 1890 Russian flu, a German, um, uh, German scientist named Richard Pfeiffer uh, thought, discovered what he thought was the, was the pathogen responsible for influenza. It was named after him. It was called Pfeiffer's bacillus, excuse me. And um, so in 1918, scientists were fairly convinced this, this bacterium um, was the cause of influenza. And so they started treating patients for this, for this bacterium. But of course, as we now know, influenza is a virus. And again, they couldn't see it in 1918. It was too small. And so uh, they were trying to treat the wrong, um, the wrong pathogen. Yeah. So 100 years from now. Someone will be saying in 2020, they should have done this. And it's part of evolution, isn't it? It's part of science, scientific evolution. So uh, I'm just guessing that's going to happen. I don't know that. But if we go back into the very beginning of our conversation, if we take the deaths so far from COVID-19 and we put it into a historic perspective, it brings us back to this feeling of complacency that we developed over the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, even though we did have pandemics and significant ones, but we've become pretty pretty cocky about it all, haven't we? We, we haven't had a, a quote-unquote big one uh, in 100 years. And so we, we, we definitely, and, and one historian who, I, who I, I think very highly of, a man named Alfred Crosby, now deceased, unfortunately, uh, he wrote a, a, one of the first books on, on 1918, and the title of his book is America's Forgotten Pandemic. And I think that's really telling of um, yeah. not, us not thinking seriously about these absolutely devastating uh, big ones, which the Black Death and the 1918 flu are examples of. And yeah. sadly, tragically, COVID-19 belongs on that list now. Really? So, so COVID-19 is going to go down uh, in the list uh, of, uh, of this uh, Deadly Companions uh, major, major events that has affected the whole world. And it just came from nowhere. I mean, it just happened so fast. Or, I mean, it originated in China, but it happened so fast uh, just 10 months ago. 
Uh, do you have any sense how this is going to end? I I wish I did, um, but I I I I don't. I think you know, watching the the ebb and flow of the of the of the curve of, of cases and the fact that the curve is going completely the wrong direction right now. Um, uh, you know, in June I was cautiously optimistic, but but now with the way things are going, I I don't. I'm not an epidemiologist, and so I. I I know that I trust in vaccines, but it's going to take some time for vaccine for a global vaccination campaign. Yeah, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds to me like uh, history is. You're looking at history and saying, "This ain't over, folks," and this is ser- very serious. So, yeah, that, that is a very fair. <laughs> you're to- those are totally acceptable words to put in my mouth. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 